This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Any honest graduate of law school or med school or seminary will tell you two things. A, that he wishes that he'd paid attention in school, and B, there is a lot about life as a physician, lawyer, or minister that one cannot learn in school. Zach Eswine is a husband, a father of three, a seminary graduate, pastor, a seminary prof, and author of several books. He is pastor of Riverside Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Webster Groves, Missouri in the southwest corner of the St. Louis metro area. He's been a pastor in Ohio, he's been on staff with Navigators, and he's actively working on the problem of racial reconciliation, among other things. He's published several books, including Kindled Fire, How the Methods of C.H. Spurgeon Can Help Your Preaching, Preaching to a Post-Everything World, and he's written on the problem of depression and the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. Hi, Zach, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks so much. It's good to be here with you. We are glad you're here. I know the students have benefited, and they're excited about uh, the things that you have been talking about. First of all, let us get to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Henryville, Indiana. That's in southern Indiana, and uh, went to school there. Went to college in Indiana. Was in Indiana all my life. Then I went to seminary as a student. St. Louis, Missouri, Covenant Theological Seminary. And then from there, I've I've, uh, served as a pastor and as a professor. And uh, my wife's name is Jessica. I have three children. Their ages are 22, 19, and 13. Okay, so you've got one more to go yeah, through. Yeah, one more to go. Yeah, the teenage years. <laughs> That's <yet>. right, yeah. <laughs> All right, so the hair you have That's right. will be a different color by the time <laughs> you're will. done. Being from Southern Indiana, you might be interested in J.D. Vance's new book. Have you looked at that, Hillbilly Elegy? No, I haven't. You should read that. You will appreciate that. I have family from Southern Indiana and from Kentucky. So just reading that has been interesting for me to get a feel for some of my relatives from grandparents and great-grandparents and the like, and some of the things I inherited from them. Yeah, uh, I definitely need to read that. It's an interesting book. I noted that I read somewhere that you are an Indiana University basketball fan and a Notre Dame football fan. It's the truth, yeah. How does that go? Well, I, I grew up Catholic in Indiana. Okay. So. <laughs> well, you're sort of obligated. That's right. You can't quite get the, the Irish blood out of me there for the football. You're not allowed to go to Mass, I don't think, no. in Indiana if you're <laughs> not right. a Notre Dame fan. That's right. And I grew up in an era in which uh, Indiana basketball and uh, Kentucky basketball, both were premier schools and both had a, quite a rivalry going. And so, yep. You have to pick one. Yep. And since you're in Indiana. I'm in Indiana. Yep, that's yeah, right. You're sort of stuck. Yep. Very good. Well, yeah, who doesn't appreciate Bobby Knight? Eh? That's right. It's always my... fun to see somebody throw a chair across that's the floor. That's right. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad he's not better known for his basketball yeah, prowess. Yeah. He was a pretty skilled coach and had some great teams. Yeah, he did. That's right. So, I remember uh, Larry Bird when he played for oh sure mm-hmm. uh, Indiana State. Yeah, I got to see him play in Omaha sometime in the 1970s when oh, he was playing that's for Indiana treat. State. Yeah, he pretty much obliterated Creighton. <laughs> is my, <laughs> my recollection. Some people where I'm from are Creighton basketball fans because yeah. Nebraska basketball has never been very good, yeah. and uh, Nebraska football fans. Yeah, you know, we have a name for that. They're called Jaskers. Okay, so it's an epithet. Okay, well, my, <laughs> anyway, my wife's from Nebraska, and so we fear the corn every fall. Oh, very and, good. Uh, okay, yeah, football wise. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an interesting household, Notre Dame football and Nebraska football. Yeah, thankfully they don't ever play each other so far. Not very often. So you mentioned that you were raised Roman Catholic. Yeah. How did you become a Presbyterian pastor then? 
Well, it's a long story, but... Uh, well, we have 30 minutes, yeah, so ba- take yeah, your time. Just basically, you know, I just had lots of questions and uh, had a very earnest desire to know God, and I'm very thankful for the upbringing that I had. But when I was in college, questions just continued to come, and I was introduced to the idea of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And uh, many of my Catholic friends and neighbors certainly already uphold that and believe that. But in my particular situation, that just wasn't part of what was happening in my life. And the Lord brought me to himself, and I found the person that discipled me through the Navigator's campus ministry, Bob. He uh, went to a local PCA church, you know, a local Presbyterian church. And um, that's how I, you know, began to experience Protestantism and Presbyterianism. Do you still have a verse pack? I do still have a verse pack. Yeah, I do. <laughs> oh, very I good. I think I have two or three. I think, uh, you know, after I uh, uh, stopped memorizing for a while and then thought, oh, I need to do this again and couldn't find the original one, I ordered a new one and now I have both and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm thankful for the good things that I got from mm-hmm. the Navigators. There, there's some, perhaps some aspects of the Navigators' view of discipleship and the Christian life that I've come to think about or rethink. Yeah. But they did teach me to love Scripture. Yeah. They did teach me the value of memorization and, in some ways, the skill of memorization. Absolutely. And, you know, I was fortunate to have uh, you know Bob Smart and Dave Bowman in my life, very relational commitment to my life. As a matter of fact, you know, in terms of coming to know the Lord Jesus, Bob had a big role in that, Bob and Karen, but they also just opened their home to me. So, you know, I was a kid from broken families and, you know, they just let me into their world. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw them play and laugh. I saw them argue and reconcile. You know, Karen taught me how to cook spaghetti, you know. (laughs) You definitely Uh, need to read Hillbilly Elegy. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, in some ways, one of the good things about that model of discipleship was the inclusive aspect of just bringing somebody into your life. Yeah, life on life. I had that too, a fellow who took an interest in me and spent time with me. And we used to say invested himself and um, modeled Christianity. He bought me my first, you know, I had my dad's RSV and then he bought me a living Bible, which when I was 15 was a little more accessible. So God was gracious and uh, you became a Presbyterian through this discipleship relationship and eventually a PCA pastor, now an EPC pastor in Webster Groves. That's correct. Why on earth, Zach Eswine, did you become and want to become a minister? You know, I started off talking about doctors, lawyers, and ministers. Yeah. And there was a time when there really was a kind of social parity. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about that in class. But that time has passed. And so socially, very few families today say to their sons, we would really love it if you would become a minister. <laughs> That's right. right? Yeah. Now, when I was a boy, that was still possible. Mm-hmm. But today, my sense is that is not very likely. So how did Zach Eswine become a pastor and why? Every clergy person has a basic story of a call, a sense of call from God, and I'm no different. But mine started very young. Some start are much later than life. Mine was very young. Uh, as a young Catholic boy, I desired to be a priest. You know, that's what I was thinking. Mrs. Cantor in second grade, she asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I raised my hand and said, priest. And she wrote that on the, the chalkboard, you know, back at the time. And uh, I think maybe that was among the first times I ever spoke that out loud. I'm certainly not a priest today, but I am in vocational ministry. And for reasons I'm not able really to explain. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. How many other children, just out of curiosity, do you remember any of the other boys in class saying that they wanted to be a priest? No. Interesting. So the first thing you start with is that sense of internal 
call. That's right. That this is something I need to do, a yeah. kind of almost compulsion that it needs to happen. That's right. And you say it, it varies from person to person mm-hmm. how that mm-hmm. manifests, how long but it takes. Then you to also yeah. had to get external confirmation from the visible church. So walk us through that process. How did that work out? Well, that internal call, you know, that ebbs and flows. Um, but uh, sure, especially after your first sermon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> it's like, I'm uh, not sure I have a call. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but it always returned and never went away. And the external call, you know, little things. You know, the wonderful thing of the Catholic parish that I was a part of was that they took mentoring us seriously. And so, you know, I was in eighth grade. I was taught how to lead mass, lead worship and give an opportunity to do so. And then I was talked to before and after. Well, similarly, in college with the Navigators, when I began to learn how to, you know, read and interpret and communicate the Bible, I just began to have a way of doing that. It seemed like clarity of what was meant. All that stuff clicked with me. So I was leading Bible studies and uh, sharing my faith. And then when I was at this church on this campus, Ball State University. It was Westminster Presbyterian Church there. They took that seriously too. And so I led worship. I had to write everything out I was going to say. They talked to me beforehand, afterhand. I led a small group, you know, three weeks in a row, and they talked to me beforehand and afterhand. I volunteered in the nursery. I handed out bulletins. I did, you know, all those things. And they watched. And so that confirmation of giftingness was there. I had said, I think I want to go to seminary to those leaders in that church. And they had said, please wait about nine months. And during that nine-month time is when they gave me all these opportunities in different ways. And somebody met with me every month. And I look back now and realize what a privilege that was, both in eighth grade and also in college. Two different environments, but nonetheless a mentoring commitment. And through those processes, those gifts were recognized by those who know me best and those who are in leadership, and they commended me to go to seminary. The funny thing is, when I went to seminary, I didn't go to be a pastor. I was a songwriter. I just wanted my lyrics to be biblical. I thought I would do more with worship. And in that community, we had to preach, you know, take preaching classes, learn how to do that. And as I began to do that, those professors and those colleagues and peers began to say, you know, we think you have a gift to preach. Have you thought about that? I'm like, no, I haven't. And so along the way, that internal call is confirmed externally in community with people who know us best and with leaders. And the school plays a role in that. a significant role in that. It's important, you know, sometimes people think that they need to have everything figured out yeah, before they right. go to school and they, they go to school to get confirmation of what they already think. And really, school is a kind of laboratory where you go and you do things you That's didn't right. expect to do, like preach. And then people come to you and say, well, we know you want to play guitar and sing, but we think maybe you could do this. And you begin thinking, well, I hadn't thought about that. Now I'll think about it. And over time, you try it and people give you feedback and you begin to reassess yourself. And lo and behold, you're now not becoming a worship leader the Mm -hmm. way you intended. Now you're on the road to becoming a preacher. So school is really crucial for that self-discovery process. It is. It's a community of people. And you get to try and learn. And you can do it in a place where you might not do a lot of damage. That's right. <laughs> if you're in a homiletics class, a yep. preaching class, and you preach a bad sermon, yep. which is in seminary, highly likely. Yes. <laughs> right? That's Three right. sermons compressed into one. Yeah. Is, I, right. I don't teach PT, but occasionally I do get to talk to the students about preaching. And I always say, one sermon, yeah. <laughs> just one, <Yep. laughs> one at a time. That's right. You know, and we've all preached 
bad, I know I did preach bad seminary sermons, and the only damage you do is inflicting it on your fellow students and your homiletics prof, and he gets paid Mm -hmm. to hear that anyway, so, (laughs) you know, we have no pity for him. Right. Rather than doing it in a congregation and maybe dragging them through your learning. That's really the benefit. It's almost an old apprenticeship model where you get to try on this vocation, various aspects of it. An internship, too. Yes, that's right. Right? The internship is great for that. Yeah. For me, the internship was absolutely definitive in my sense of call. I was thinking about maybe grad school. I wasn't sure. And I did an internship, and it was after that that I thought, this is what I need to do. I am called to serve the visible institutional church. Do you remember the first time you got into a real pulpit? I do. In a real church to preach, technically to (laughs) exhort. Yes. But to preach for what, for all practical purposes, is a real sermon. Yes. What was that like? (laughs) (laughs) He laughs. I I stepped down from the pulpit, and, you know, the tradition in that little church was that after the person preached, they would walk to the back to greet folks, you know, to the end of the service. So the pastor walked with me to the back. And as I was walking to the back, I heard a young boy turn to his dad and say, Daddy, why did that man yell so much? (laughs) (laughs) I understand that. That's where it began. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, when the the content is weak, the volume (laughs) is strong. That's right. (laughs) It is interesting. Some of my early homiletical influences were voluble, we might say. There was a fair bit of yelling going on. Mm -hmm. And I did not really get another model of preaching until I went overseas. And I got to hear David Fletcher. He was a wonderful, not very well-known, but very gifted British evangelical. And I saw him preach with real passion and depth, but also grace and joy. And he never, almost never, raised his voice, and certainly not in anger. But they were very powerful sermons. Mm -hmm. And that really, in some ways, was transformative for me to see that. And, you know, I remember there was a classmate who I had never heard to that point, D. James Kennedy. Uh, So after graduation, I'm getting ready for church one Sunday, and the TV was on, and I thought I heard my classmate, Rod. And I said to Barb, I hear Rod on the television. What's going on? And I walked over, and it wasn't Rod. It was D. James Kennedy. (laughs) He had so imbibed Kennedy. He was from his congregation (laughs) that that's how he sounded. And I'd never heard Kennedy to that point. So (laughs) only person I'd ever heard talk like that was Rod. So how was your preaching developed from that day That when the boy said, how come he yelled so much? Well, a great deal. You know, when I first went into pastoral ministry as a lead pastor, that kind of commitment to really try to be the prophet, if you will, um, not compromise truth and all that really was hard on people. I was hard on people. And there was a moment where I had shared a prayer request in a Sunday school class regarding my papa. Which is your grandfather. My grandfather, right. And a very dear woman, Betty Miguel, came to me and she said, Pastor, which is always humbling. I was 27 or 28 years old at that time, and she had walked with the Lord more years than that, of course. And she very respectfully but earnestly said to me, Pastor, you would never talk to your papa the way you talk to us every week. And then she said, it took me 30 years to come to believe that God loved me in Jesus, and I can't let you take that from me. And she was very earnest, not a meanness in her body, for me, committed to me as a younger man, but honest. That was a gracious honesty. It marked a turning point for me, a long journey for me. You and Abraham Kuyper. Hmm. It was a little old lady who came to Abraham Kuyper and basically told him he wasn't converted. And of course, he wasn't converted. 
And he realized that he wasn't yeah. converted. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. The Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888 480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. The guy who mentored me was Norman Hofflinger, and he told me a story about uh, some period in his ministry. He was 63 about this time when he told me the story. He'd been a minister you know, for 30 years or more by this time. And he said that somebody had said to him, Pastor, you seem like you're dissatisfied with us. What are we doing that's making you so dissatisfied? And that really pulled him up short and made him think about what he was saying to folks that would give them that impression. So yeah. that's interesting. So your ministry really took a different direction after it that. Did. Not that you abandoned any sort of prophetic stance. No, it's just, uh, you know, that sent me searching. And uh, I think the wisdom literature of the Bible has been real helpful to me in that way, that God does speak like a prophet, of course. But usually the prophet's coming from the margins, coming into a scenario that's... Um, it's almost conference-like. That's a crass way to say it. But you know, you're coming in, you're saying something, and you're going back out. But pastoral ministry isn't like that. You know, the shepherd is a returning person. Jeremiah isn't your weekly minister right. in the pulpit. That's right. And so, of course, um, there's a time and place for a local minister is going to have to say woe to you, you know, or something like that, but not as a norm. And uh, I had that mixed up. Every week can be a little Every wearing. Week. Yeah, because, you know, right after the message, you know, you're going out to lunch with, with people. You're visiting in the hospital. You're going to a little league game. You know, if you're in a congregation that's 120, 180 people, something like that, or not much bigger, not much smaller than that, you're doing life with people. And so you can't just come in like that. So it was a misunderstanding on my part, you know. And I think rereading the Gospels helped me there to realize that, you know, as you read through the book of Matthew, the Lord Jesus, you hear him talk about birds and trees and flowers and farms, you know, blessed are, blessed are, he's interpreting the law. It's not till chapter 23. So you're 23 chapters in before you hear woe to you. And so what that reminds us of is that our Lord did take up the prophetic mantle. He is able to say woe to you, but that is not his normative speech. And he recognized and made use of a whole variety of genres. Yes, he did. Humor? Yes. Irony? Sarcasm? Exposition? A whole series of rhetorical tools in his toolbox. Yeah, and so as a minister, to learn to see myself as a human being in community, walking with people, 
as a shepherd does, looking to and for the Lord together is a different mindset. It's a different image than I had, I think, when I started. I didn't realize I had that sort of dominant image in my mind, but uh, that shepherd, farmer, marathon runner was not what I had in mind. I was thinking that I I need to come and powerfully explode, you know, either (laughs) uh, (laughs) in some way. Which is appropriate, as you say, at times, Yes, but not every week. I mean, the farmer doesn't go out and overturn his field every week. That's right. Right? Yep. Grandpa used to, you know, there are times of the year when you have to go out and disc the field and, yes. and use different implements in your field. But, you know, once the wheat is in or the corn is in, then you have to nurture that and tend that. You can't go, you know, taking the crust buster through there or some other implement and wiping that hole out. You'll never get anything out of the ground. Yeah. And of course, the thing we're talking about right now isn't actually audibleness. Some pastors are louder, some are quieter. There was an edge in it. This is a mood. It's a mood in it. There's um, an anger or an impatience or a, Ooh, impatience. something in there. When mm-hmm. anger is a problem, yeah. but impatience. And that's part of being a young preacher, right? Mm-hmm. Just out yes, of seminary, you don't know your congregation very well. That's they don't right. know you very well. Yeah. And you're kind of used to going into places, saying stuff like a conference speaker, yeah. and then going away. And you don't really have to pay for the sins that you committed. That's Somebody right. else is going to have to <laughs> clean right. that up. Yeah. But now, when you are the minister, yeah. you're the farmer. Yep. And you have to live with these crops that you've sown. And, yes. and you have to be with these people, as you say, in the hospital, yeah. in the house, in catechism. Yes, And so you really do need to take a more pastoral tone with folks. And don't you think that it's also about getting basic things like law and gospel right? It's easy to take a law tone and let your preaching have a legal tone, and you fall into it. I know I've fallen into it. And you forget to be a gospel preacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to speak to them as if they were free in Christ. And yeah. then bring the law in its third use, not just in its first use. We bring good news. And then we, you know, eat fried chicken and macaroni on plastic <laughs> plates together. You know, there's just a rhythm of life together in congregation. There's some good fried chicken in St. Louis <laughs> and some barbecue. Get some barbecue there, yep. I miss fried chicken and barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if the listener is getting hungry, but... Southern California has a lot of wonderful things, Mm -hmm. but fried chicken is not one of them, (laughs) nor barbecue. These folks just don't quite get barbecue. Or pizza. They keep putting strange, strange things on pizza. But anyway, so you are a professor of homiletics and applied theology. So what does it mean to teach homiletics? Homiletics is teaching, is preaching, and uh, gospel communication, and gospel communication in its various forms preaching in pastoral ministry, uh, leading Bible studies, leading small groups, things like that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What is a sermon? Here's why I ask that question. I bet if you ask, you know, 100 people in a 100-member congregation, you'd get close to 100 different answers as to what a sermon is. Yeah. Which is an amazing thing that anything good comes of it since everybody thinks you're <laughs> doing is, something than, other than what you're doing. What do you tell your students a sermon is? I'd say it this way. A sermon is a testimony. That is, you are standing up in a public place and declaring where you stand regarding God and this world and who Jesus is and who we are. But that testimony serves a text. And so you stand up to testify, but you do that by stewarding, being an ambassador of, explaining, illustrating, and applying a particular text from the Word of God in its context for our life. And uh, perhaps 
trying to find the difference between preaching and teaching isn't always easy. But uh, I think a common way of thinking of it is that preaching is going to have an exhortation element to it in a way that teaching itself, mere instruction, might not. There's an announcing quality. Yes. You use the metaphor of an ambassador. Yes. So if we're embassies or ambassadors from the king yes. to his kingdom, yes. then we're delegated representatives yes. announcing a message. And again, we trust in a domineering way. We hope in a yes. joyful way. Yes. We're not merely explaining. Not to say there's not explaining that goes on in That's a sermon. Right. But it's not a lecture. That's right. And that communication, as it always has been in the Scripture, you know, Moses and the people there, you know, they went to see God, quote-unquote, face-to-face, and they encountered lightning and trumpeting and things like that, and they said, no, thank you, we'd like not to do that again. (laughs) Would you send someone to speak to us? And that's what happens. The Lord gives us people to speak on his behalf for us, not because he's busy and off somewhere else, but because no one can see him and live, not because he's mean but because he's pure, kind, and holy to everything else. Paul calls preachers, among other offices, gifts. That's right. Which doesn't always seem that way on a given That's right. <laughs> but objectively, that's what they are. It's a given function for the community of faith. And um, some people have gifts of mercy and other type of practical gifts, and others have gifts of speaking, speaking and service, the way Peter talks about it. And so reading, interpreting, communicating the Scripture is a gift for the community. And it's a kind thing that God would call someone to do that. You know, and it's not every preacher is able to do it full time. But it, in its ideal form, the plumber gets to plumb all week and really go for it. And that's his vocation with his family and his plumbing. And he is able to dip into the scriptures as he's able to throughout the week and in his prayer life before the Lord. But uh, God gives him and his wife who just had a baby who's three months old and they're up a lot in the night gives him someone who's laboring in the Word full-time to be able to feed them, if you will, and to set before them the sanity of Jesus in the Scriptures. Earlier on, you mentioned the influence and the benefit of reading the wisdom literature Mm -hmm. relative to preaching, particularly Ecclesiastes. And you mentioned that in your talk this morning, and you've written on that. How is Ecclesiastes useful for pastoral ministry and for preaching? Well, the wisdom literature as a whole is useful because it's so earthy and concrete. It's everyday life as it is under the sun in all its complexities. So Ecclesiastes in particular gives language to a lot of that, the way we would talk. I don't understand this. I do understand that. I don't get this. This makes me crazy. You know, it gives us (laughs) language the way we would actually speak if we're looking at something. Today's English version of Ecclesiastes. That's right. Well, I mean, the minister does experience the kind of frustration that is reflected in Ecclesiastes. Yes. Right? I mean, think about, you know, I've been at it in one way or another since 1984, and I know that by God's grace that he has used me to do things despite my sins and frailties. But I also know that things are not fundamentally different in the world since yes. I started. That's right. Right? People are still getting sick and still dying, and bad things are still happening, and people are still doing bad things to each other. And at times, it's tempting to say, you know, or maybe it's salutary to recognize, you know, vanity of vanity, mm-hmm. all is vanity, mm-hmm. saith Koheleth, which is yes. sometimes translated the preacher, the, preacher. Mm-hmm. the convener of the covenant assembly. Yes. So, how has Ecclesiastes comforted you as you think about 
for example, the frustrations of pastoral ministry? Well, um, maybe after a session meeting. Yeah, right. No, no reflection on your session. <laughs> no, I'm thankful for those. Men. You know, it's like uh, it gives us language. It's a great comfort because it reveals the character of God for us. And so if God-inspired speech says, I hated life because of what people do to one another, that's God giving us language for how to talk about this misery that we see under the sun. Or if we say it's meaningless, it's meaningless, that's God-given language. God is showing us, teaching us how to talk to him about this stuff that we see. And of course, our Lord Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, how I would have gathered you, you know, but you wouldn't. Which is a lament, right? It's a lament. And so it gives us language of lament as well as honest, real, earthy language that we speak. The other thing about Ecclesiastes is you don't have to know the story of David and Goliath or Moses in the promised land or the covenant with Abraham. There's no explicit requirement that the reader of that book understands all that stuff. Like the other aspects of the wisdom literature, it's speaking humanly about life under the sun and in all of its brokenness. And if you think of it as uh, if you once lived in a place and then you haven't been there for years and you go back and it's torn down, it's not what it once was, and you feel sad about that. It's sort of like that in Ecclesiastes. He's thinking about what Eden was, what God created all things to be, and now he's looking at what's become of it, Mm. and he's lamenting that. And that gives us language for the real earthy concrete Mm. things that people experience in work and outside and in life. And If the blues were in Scripture, (laughs) you're from St. Louis. Yes, that's right. If the blues (laughs) were in Scripture, they would sound like Ecclesiastes. They would. Yes, it would. If you've ever listened to, you know, blues music, especially older traditional blues music. that's right. It's a sung lament about fallenness, brokenness, disappointment, hurt, all of those things that you see reflected in. That's right. And it comes back to that refrain, that repeated refrain, there's nothing better than to enjoy. And so there's this theme of joy that won't quit throughout all the minor notes that are being played. It comes back to this nothing better than to enjoy your work, to enjoy your food, to enjoy your drink, to enjoy the wife of your youth. This is your lot. This is God's gift. And pity the person who has these things and can't enjoy them, for they are the gift of God. So this thing that God created in Eden won't give up. How does the gospel get us to the proper end of the story? Because Ecclesiastes doesn't get us there. Yeah, that's it right. points us, but it doesn't get us there. But the gospel gets us there. Yeah. How does the gospel fit into that as you think about announcing the story yeah. in a sermon? Well, in a couple of ways. One, our Lord Jesus not only fulfills the you know, prophets and the priestly language and the kingly rule in the Old Testament, but he also fulfills the wisdom literature. He is the one greater than Solomon who has come. He is our wise man. And so, first of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of wisdom. But second of all, all those things that are lamented as being broken, those are the things Jesus came to restore and recover. All the injustice and sin that's spoken of in Ecclesiastes, those describe the things Jesus came to die for and save us from. And the lament of life under the sun and what's become of it, that whole all of the earth and its brokenness is picked up in the New Testament with all creation groans, you know, longing for its redemption. And so not only those who experience the fallenness of life are being restored and recovered through the gospel in Jesus Christ, but also the earth itself, what it was made to be, will be recovered and made new and uh, points forward to something coming. It's not like we go back to Eden, but everything Eden was points us forward. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.